read for the continuation of the reading and ministry of God's word. Turn with me to Exodus, and we are in chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11. Let us hear God's word with reverence and awe. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people, and every man ask, and let every man ask from his neighbor, and every woman from her neighbor, articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of his female servants, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as is not so it's what's not like it before, nor shall it be again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between Egypt, the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Thus far, the word of our God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray together. O Lord God, as we are assembled before you, as we continue in our worship, we come to this high point where we, as uh, your creatures, and, and furthermore, as your children, your sons and, and daughters, we would humble ourselves before you, that we would bow down before you and listen to how you have spoken in times of old, that even as your word is taken up, that you would bless it, that we would hear it now, that you would speak from the scriptures, and that we would hear the voice of our God. Christ would be magnified, that we would be encouraged in the faith, the sinners would be humbled and hear the call of the Savior to come to him, and that in all these things Christ would have the preeminence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. You may be seated. Beginning with a little bit different introduction, I'm going to go to Luke 4. Some of you, maybe about half of you, are here in this congregation with Pastor Tony preached through Luke, and that's been a good while ago, but it's, it's a familiar passage, and I think you will remember it. Jesus uh, has been anointed to be the Messiah uh, by John the Baptist, and then the Holy Spirit immediately led him out into the wilderness. We've just prayed, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Um, in God's providence, and by God's appointment, Jesus was led to the wilderness, where he would not only fast for 40 days, but that he would be tempted there. It's a prayer that in God's providence we would not be led into temptation. But Jesus did go into the wilderness. He was tempted by the devil. And Luke shows there how the seed of the woman, that is Christ, prevailed over the seed of the serpent, even the serpent himself. And he did so by the word of God. Jesus then returns from the wilderness, and he goes to Nazareth. He goes to his hometown. It's the Sabbath day. He goes to the synagogue, as was his practice. We're told just that little bit, that little phrase that's in the text there, that on the Sabbath day, Jesus gathered with God's people for worship. Luke says, as was his custom. And so when he was there in the synagogue, he stood up to read. And the men of the synagogue took turns, and when they had handed him a scroll, he turned in that scroll to the place that we know as Isaiah 61, where it is written, and Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me 
to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's Jesus stops there and he says, Today, in your hearing, these words are fulfilled. He's proclaiming it. I am the servant of the Lord. I am the one who's come to do these things. And he's talking about, uh, certainly, his going to the cross to pay the penalty for the sin of his people, that they would be set free from sin, that the power of sin would be broken and the evil one defeated. But the very next thing in Isaiah's prophecy is he wrote these things some 700 years before the days of Christ. Scripture goes on to say, he was prepared that it was also the day of vengeance. Jesus sat down, and it was not that long, probably three years, not quite three years after that, that Jesus is led out by Romans to the place of the skull, out the sheep gate where sacrifices were brought in. This sacrifice goes out, crucified without the camp, as the scriptures said. And there Jesus hung. On a Roman cross. There he bore the sins of his people. There he received the wrath of God. And thus he became, or or fulfilled his responsibilities as our Redeemer, as the Deliverer, as the one who sets men free, fulfilling that promise. Well, the events we're reading and preaching about in Exodus took place roughly 1,500 years, not quite, but about 1,500 years before Jesus' crucifixion. The exodus of Israel out of the house of bondage, the deliverance from slavery in Egypt points to the greater deliverance from the bondage of sin, death, and out from under the wrath of God's justice. And it's true that Jesus came to proclaim the favorable, that is the acceptable or the favorable year of the Lord. But this is a very important, and this is very important, but Jesus coming at that time, there was something more. We look at the passage that goes on in Isaiah 6 to 1, as I mentioned ago, the very next words where Jesus stopped reading, the Messiah, Jehovah's servant, also came to bring the day of the vengeance of God. Now, when Jesus walked amongst men, he came as the Redeemer. He came to not to judge the world at that time, but his coming and fulfilling God's plan, coming and going to the cross, then gave him the right God gave him the right not only uh, as the Son of God, but as the God-man, as Christ, to be seated at the right hand of the Father, and from there to judge the nations. And the Father is appointed for him to have a great white throne, as we're told in Revelation. And from there he will judge all the nations. He told the people of Israel this, that God had appointed for him to judge the nations. And in that, because of Jesus' coming, peace and mercy and as a redeemer he will also then return to bring a day of vengeance and you see that in 70 AD the children of Israel in 70 AD God destroys their nation destroys the temple because Christ has come and and the, the kingdom the church is not limited to Israel not that it ever was but that's one of the great things when Christ's work is completed that the gospel goes beyond the bounds to Judea to Samaria to the other ends of the earth And so that is still continuing. But there's a day of vengeance. And so we have indications of that. And here in the book of Exodus, we're seeing the day of vengeance. We're seeing the day of vengeance of God upon Egypt, the the oppressors. You may be thinking, Pastor, show us how, how Exodus 11 relates to this. Well, we've been seeing and hearing the mighty acts of God's judgment and for the Israelites, they were, they were good tidings. Remember when Moses came from the wilderness, having seen God and, and heard from God and, and had been commissioned by God to go and to be the deliverer, the one who would lead the people out. And he came and he told the sons of Jacob these things, and, and they rejoiced that there would be liberty for them. The opening of the prison, but it was also a day of vengeance for Egypt, a promise to those appointed for salvation, a day of blessing. But for those who do not believe, a day of judgment. And that's what Jesus records, or John records in in John 3, after Jesus has met with Nicodemus, that there are those who are condemned already. Why? 
because they believe not the Son of God. And that's, this is the sober reality. Yes, now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable year of the Lord. Now Christ is still extending his hands to invite people to come to him and to be set free. But there is a day when this same Redeemer who will come with vengeance upon his enemies and adversaries, and it will be those who do not believe, those who have refused and rejected him. Well, Egypt is in that. We know that the book of Egypt is it's like a picture it's, it's like a, a major signpost in the events of history from your perspective, pointing down to the cross you know, that we, we understand clearly that this, this exodus, a literal physical exodus out of slavery, absolute slavery, is a picture of what Christ would come to do, what Christ has come to do, and indeed what Christ is continuing to do, setting us free from slavery. This morning we want to consider chapter 11 on the four headings, preparing for the exodus, pronouncing the final plague, proof of God's electing grace, and then we will conclude, even where we've begun, with a warning to the unconverted. The question that should be coming each one of us is, was Jesus coming to earth a day of liberty or vengeance? For me, was Jesus' work, the, the reality of who Jesus is, is he the one? Is he my redeemer or will he be my judge? That depends on whether you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. We must cast ourselves on Christ. Otherwise, the vengeance of God's wrath hangs over us. We'll begin with preparing for the Exodus. We look at verses 1 through 3. Uh, this chapter serves um, to bring the reader from the first nine plagues to the tenth plague. It, it bridges the account from the nine devastating supernatural acts of the Lord as he has made himself known to Pharaoh. First and foremost, oh, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh who views himself as a god, who sees himself as an absolute sovereign. God who is sovereign. The Lord, the covenant God of Israel, is making himself known to Pharaoh. And then to the land of Egypt, the people of Egypt. And as we've noted along the way, he's making himself known to the Israelites. This is the great theme of the book of Exodus, God making himself known. Moses' record here of events, it doesn't follow a strict timeline. This is very typical in Hebrew literature. And so when we come to verses 4 through 8, which are following 1 through 3, where we're focused right now, 4 through 8 is more of what God said through Moses when Moses and Aaron were summoned by Pharaoh after the plague of darkness, which is back, we find in back of verse, chapter 10, verse 24, that they are summoned. There's, this is more of the dialogue that took place at that point, but we'll come to that in a moment. So verses 1 through 3 are telling us what the Lord told Moses prior to the final plague. He, he gives instruction to Moses. It's interesting. The plagues begin, and God keeps coming to Moses saying, okay, this is what's going to happen. Sometimes go tell Pharaoh. And other times, as we've seen at the end of each of the sets of three plagues, they just fall upon Egypt. But God never told Moses there's going to be ten plagues. Now, the tenth plague, he tells Moses, as we'll see long before that, that this is going to take place. But God never said there's going to be ten. He just, there's another one. Until now, and God tells him, I'm going to bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, then afterwards he will let you go from here. This is a moment you can imagine that Moses has been waiting for, that the children of Israel have been waiting for. And isn't it that way in our lives sometimes? We have these promises from God. We have this hope and expectation. But God's timeline is not our timeline. God's plan is perfect for our lives. Remember, he's sovereign, and, and we kind of grade at that, wanting to be sovereign. Hurry up, do it, God. But God is working all things together for our good and according to his perfect plan, which is part of the good that he has for us. And so we hear Moses and, and Israel, are they're waiting, but now the word comes, one more plague. I'll bring one more plague, and then Pharaoh will let you go. He will surely drive you out. It's not just that he's going to say, okay, you can go. After this next plague that is coming, 
uh, Pharaoh will say, go, get. It's as almost as though you know those who are the, the slave masters will put the whip on the back of it and just go. I don't think he literally did it, but there's going to be this, this strong pronouncement, get out of my land. I've had enough of it. Go away. Pharaoh will be broken. We know a little bit later on his arrogance will resurge and off he'll go. But God says this time he will surely let you go. And so then now he tells Moses to talk to somebody different. If you follow through the plagues, God's not had Moses addressing the children of Israel. You know, they hear about things, things are happening, they're, they're, they're protected from many of the plagues, but God says, speak now to the hearing of the people. Go talk to the people. So remember, the people, who are the people here? The people are God's people, the people of the Lord. He is their Lord, their covenant faithful God. Go speak to them. And what is he going to say? Let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor. That's not their next-door neighbor, but the, the Egyptians, they know. Remember, these are slaves, and they would go work in the land, uh, in, in uh, the households, in the fields of Egyptians. So they would know these people. The, go to those people. And there's another principle. Ask them articles of silver and gold. Now, it's not only that, but ask for, like, the utmost, silver and gold. And we'll find out later that that's just a picture. Ask them for anything, anything of value, anything of wealth. Ask this of their neighbors. And so the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So, you know, we've heard that when Pharaoh's broken, he's going to drive him out. But the people of Egypt, they've had enough. And so... They're ready to give these people that. And the, 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 the Israelites are not stealing from the Egyptians. They're making a request. Let everyone ask his neighbor. And the Lord, working as a sovereign God upon the hearts of the Egyptians, this is not a converting work, but it is a compelling work. God compelling them uh, to have favor upon the Egyptians. Those who, I mean, on the Israelites, they viewed them, uh, viewed them as you know, just chattel, just to be used and to abused, and now their hearts have been changed. This is an extraordinary people. These people have a great God, and God has prevailed upon them to, to just open their hands and to be generous. Great favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Notice, and even in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, that's not just his citizens. It's his household, his, his officers, the people of his court. You remember earlier, they're the ones that said to Egypt, you know, do you not know that Egypt, I mean to Pharaoh, do you not know that Egypt is destroyed? You know, they, they got it earlier on. So the, the, the servants of Pharaoh, um, they also, they had favor upon the people. So God is bringing to pass what he has said. Israel has been enslaved for 400 years. That's hard to imagine. None of us is going to live even 100 years. Never mind 400 years. You know, if you think of a generation of 40 years, that's 10 generations. That's all they've known. It's all their fathers knew. It's all their grandfathers knew. It's all their great-grandfathers on and on back. This is all they've known. 400 years of slavery. Uh, what do you make a year? What did that turn into for a just salary for 400 years? And the Lord indeed blessed, and they took the wealth of Egypt with them. God told the children of Israel, their father. Who's their father? You know, we were often referring to Jacob, who's also called Israel. Who was their father ultimately? It was Abram. It was in the Ur of the Chaldees, a, a Gentile. There was no Hebrew. There were no chosen people. I mean, God had the seed of Seth, those whom he had mercy on. And, and Abraham, when he was known as Abram, is one of those. God calls him out. And the Lord said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also... The nation whom they serve, I will judge the vengeance of the Lord. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. What we're hearing about here in Exodus 11, and then we'll see more of it in the later chapters, God told Abram before Abram had even a son. He said, I will bless you, and you will have descendants as numerous as the sky, stars in the sky. And so 
430 years, we're going to hear when they go out, they went out exactly 430 years because they lived in Egypt for 30 years. You know, Joseph, the favor of Joseph, blessed and so forth. But then they became enslaved for 400 years, just as God had told Abram. Think about that. We have a point, the absolute sovereignty of God. We see the sovereignty of God in this. Who but the Lord God is able to decree things hundred of years down the road and bring them to pass? Only the Lord God. He is sovereign, and he is our sovereign, faithful, covenant Lord. Your life is in his hand, and he was able to provide for you and to sustain you according to his best for you. I want you to think about it. We're going to hear some chapters, probably, yeah, um, after the first of the year. We'll be into that part of Exodus. And God's going to describe the building of this tabernacle, a place where he will meet with his people, a, a picture of his dwelling in their midst. And you hear of the incredible beauty, the ornate structure, the, the things that then the children of Israel, these same people, they will bring and give to into the hand of Moses for the construction of this tabernacle. Gold and bronze and acacia wood and fine linens and, and uh, scarlet fabrics and blue fabrics, gorgeous, beautiful, costly things. Listen, they did not find those things in the wilderness. There were, there were no shops. There were no vendors. They, they, these things were not found in that place. Where did they come from? Right here. They came out of Egypt. That's the promise to our God that in the end, the kings of the earth will come to us, the church, the people of God, streaming in and bringing the wealth of the nations to God's people. And we have a picture of that before it happens. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But the, people, the servants of Pharaoh, it was different for them. There was favor, even in them, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. Moses, what? Was very great in the land. How many times has Moses gone to Pharaoh? Well, you can imagine the first time that he comes in. You know, I, you know, I don't want to overstate the case, but we read between the lines of Pharaoh, you know, this mighty man that you know all his subjects see him as a god. And here comes this Hebrew. He might have, you know, why aren't you out making bricks? And he comes before him and he makes these demands: Let my people go. Who's this God? I don't even, he says, I don't know the Lord. Right? And the Lord's been making him known. Pharaoh's complete disregard. Even his subjects, you know, think of the magicians. Oh, yeah, we can do better than you, Moses. We got one as well. Until they couldn't. And then we heard how that one plague, they couldn't even stand before Moses. God has given Moses great stature in the eyes of the Egyptians, even if Pharaoh still despises him. So it is down through the ages. Men who are servants of the Lord, uh, of little means or uh, no great appearance and, and maybe not even great orators or speakers, as Paul says of himself, I'm an eloquent of town. And yet, what stature do we give to such men? You, you think of the, the, the Puritans and, and others of days of old, you know, the church fathers for that matter, these men who were men like us, and yet they had great stature. We still respect them. We, we appreciate them. We, we read their works, and, and they're esteemed in our eyes. Why? Because they were faithful servants of the Lord. You want to have respect, children? Don't run after what the world says will give you respect and standing, wealth, fame, beauty. Beauty is fleeting. Beauty is but for a moment. Look around at some of us. Yeah, we were young and attractive once, and now we're wrinkled, old, and gray. That's the reality. You, too, will be there. But where is great standing? Where is respect? Being faithful to serve the Lord, as Moses has. Pharaoh alone, then, as we hear these words in verse 3, is like an island all alone in his own land. The people are giving their wealth to the Israelites. The servants of Pharaoh, they respect Moses. He, he is, has great standing before them. But Pharaoh is completely out of step. 
He's like an island in the midst of his own land. He's blinded by his own arrogance. So these verses, as I've said, teach us the sovereignty of God. He declares the ending from the beginning. God is above it all. As you've heard me say before, he's above it all. Children, remember this. He's in it all. and is at work through it all. The Hebrew slaves are going to be free, exactly as God told their father, Abram. The Lord's heard their cry, and he is setting them free. They would not leave empty-handed. Indeed, they're going to leave with wagons and carts filled with the wealth of Egypt. I want you to think about yourself. Is the bondage of sin a heavy, heavy burden? Now, if you don't have the life of Christ in your heart, you, you might have some sense of that. Maybe you don't like the consequences from sin sometimes. But if, if you're bound to Christ, if Christ has worked in your heart, the bondage of sin is a heavy burden. We long to, to be done. We're, we're set free from the power of it. We're, we're delivered from the penalty of it, but we still are at war with it. This is our process of sanctification, our growing in holiness, becoming more Christ-like, and it's a daily struggle. Indeed, the cry, our cry that should go up is, Lord, save. Lord, help. And indeed, do you find the Lord to be faithful, to deliver you? to rescue you when you call upon him, and certainly he is. This is why we come. This is why we gather for worship, isn't it? We come from the world. We're weary. We're battered. We're mindful of our sin, and we come, as it were, to a hospital. We, we come before the great physician. We come to worship him because he has had mercy on us. He has saved us. He's redeemed us. He works in us. He, he gathers us, and we hear the assurance of his forgiveness, and he, he receives from us our praise. We come to worship him because Jesus has set us free. Why is it the world won't come? They're still in the bondage of sin. So we heard moments ago from 1 Corinthians Paul sought to be all things to all people for the sake that some might be one. We can be that same sort of an individual. You don't need a Ph.D. or even an MDiv. You don't need to go to Bible college. Be a witness. Tell others of the great things that God has done for you. Has you set you free from sin? Tell others. Have you discovered the joy of the Lord? Tell others. Have you found in him a peace that passes understanding? Tell others. You can imagine, you know, we, we read through these things and we, we don't ponder and think. Imagine the, the people of Israel, the, the people, and they go and they start asking. You know, they're former slave masters, masters, and they're being generous. Here, here, take this. You, know, what, you, know, can't, you can't carry, oh, you know, take my wagon. Have some more. Take it. And you can imagine the Hebrews like, what is going on? Has God really come to deliver us? Yes, indeed, he has. God is faithful. It was indeed the favorable year of the Lord for the children of Israel, pointing to that greater day for them, from their perspective, was to come. Well, then we move on to the second point, pronouncing the final plague, verses 4 through 8. As I mentioned earlier, 4 through 8 is the rest of what Moses told Pharaoh when he appeared before Pharaoh during right after the darkness that was in chapter 10. Because remember how that ended. Verse 29 says, and Moses wasn't like, oh, I got that wrong. He said, I will never see your face again. And so here we find out, it's not really until you get to verse 8, that we know that this discourse, the, the Moses thus says to the Lord, this to Pharaoh. We find that's the context. And so he said this after the plague of darkness, when when Pharaoh once again thought he could negotiate and set the terms and the parameters. And then it is that Moses says in that context before he leaves in anger <coughs> that he says, Thus says the Lord. And the text reads about midnight. Uh, that's fair. It's, it's the, the Hebrews are the middle of the night. It's not at the stroke of 12. But in the middle of the night, that's the nature of what the word language is. The Lord is speaking. I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn of the land of Egypt will die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. 
Now think about it. We've seen the plagues. There's not a lot of animals left. You know, how, how the ones that are left are left. Well, there's still animals left. And God says, the firstborn of those animals, they too are going to die. But before that, God says from Pharaoh, Pharaoh was seen as untouchable. But they've already found out. Pharaoh's always found out he's untouchable. He summons Moses after the plague of darkness, which completely strikes at who he is, the the bringer of sun and life. And and for three days, it's darkness so dark that he won't even move around. From that one, in, in Egyptian culture, the Lord speaks of the handmaid, the female servant who's behind the handmaid. That is like the lowest of the low stature for servants to just sit and grind grain all day long no one's going to be exempt this is quite a pronouncement for God there's been nothing like it before other than we look at the days of Noah when all perished but here it is in the land of Egypt a great blow God goes on there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as was not before it like it before, nor shall it be again. Does that language sound familiar? Remember the number of the plagues you know, that they came, you know, the, the locusts, the hail, nothing like it before, uh, and even all the way back in your ancestors, never in the history of the nation, nothing like this same thing here. The cry of Egypt, whatever cry they've had before over the plagues and the, the desolation and the destruction and the loss of, of wealth, uh, their, their, their produce of the land, their livestock, uh, the cry when they were afflicted with boils or irritated with flies and gnats, the cry from this plague will be unlike any other before it or after. And notice also the language throughout all the land of Egypt. We've heard that with the other plagues. All the land, throughout all the land, none will, will be exempt What a tremendous pronouncement of God, this final plague. And Pharaoh hears it. He will be afflicted. His firstborn. The one who Pharaoh, you know, viewing himself as a god, will pass on. This is so, this is so ironic. The one who sees himself as a god, who is esteemed as a god, who when he dies, what? Who when he dies, he's going to pass on that to his son, who, guess what? He will die. He will pass. And his, this is the way of the gods of men. They're so temporary. They're so pathetic. They're so weak. Again, children, that's why we don't run after the way of the world. You don't listen to the message of the world and what they esteem and what they value and, and what they say to you you should worship. We worship the one who is worthy of worship because there is one living and true God. Pharaoh's son is just another human child. And God, who is the sovereign over all, tells Pharaoh, I'm going to strike your firstborn son. And indeed, all throughout the land. Well, of course, this pronouncement, we're going to hear more about it in the next chapter because of what God does with this plague. God will institute the Passover so that Israel will remember this forever, that their firstborn, they belong to the Lord. And rather than God taking them, he takes the tribe of Levi, and for every firstborn throughout the twelve, the other 11 tribes, there's a Levite for all the firstborn to serve before the Lord. And then there was not enough, and so they took up a collection of coins to make up for the shortage. But these are gods. And God says, you're going to remember this every single year. You're going to remember this. As a matter of fact, God's going to point that their calendar will begin with a Passover. It will begin with the days of the Exodus that they should never forget what God did in the land of Egypt. And what is it that we're going to hear in just the next point is their children weren't struck. But they're always to remember when all the firstborn throughout all the land of Egypt were struck down by God. We've talked about with the other plagues how devastating they were. Really hard for us to imagine. We can try to imagine you know, hail throughout the land, you know, big enough hail to, to kill man and beast. We can try to imagine, you know, seeing our land just covered with locusts. Uh, you know, there's no way to even see the earth. We can try to imagine. They've been afflicted with these things, severe and devastating. But this one, it's at the height of them all. They're firstborn. 
What's the significance of the firstborn? I hope your minds are thinking, Christ. He's the only begotten Son of God. As the Son of God, He's eternal with the Father, begotten of the Father. He has no ending or beginning. He is as the same with the Father, same substance, equal to power and glory. He's fully God. But in the fullness of time, born of a woman, God set forth His Son in the form of human flesh, God's firstborn. And there's a connection because God refers to Israel as His firstborn. But God will then literally send His Son as the firstborn Son of Mary in His humanity to redeem a people. Why? And to what end? So that we do not experience the death that went out throughout the land of Egypt, which is but a type, but a, but a picture. It really happened, but it points to that final and ultimate death for all sinners who are apart from Christ. If we're not in Christ, under the blood of Christ, we not only will perish in the night, but forever and ever and ever in the fires of hell where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. What a plague. What a picture. But what a promise. The favorable year of the Lord in Christ Jesus. This picture of death throughout the land also has a connection, yes, to the vengeance of God, but also to the, the, the day of liberty, the favorable year of the Lord. The two are tied together. And in our day, we have people, they want to separate that. People want to say, you know, there's no hell. There's no judgment. Perhaps there's just annihilation. You, you die and you're gone. That's what some think. And yet we know that's not true because God has revealed in his word that eternity is written on the heart of every single image bearer of God. We know there's something more. And the only hope is to be in Christ because he's the one, the only one, who is fully sufficient as our Redeemer, the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, without sin. As Paul writes in Corinthians, he who knew no sin, the one who had never sinned, no sin was found in him. He was not guilty. Even uh, Pilate recognized that, which is astounding. But, but the brilliance of the one before him, he, under, he recognized that this man was without sin, and indeed he was. He, Jesus Christ, became sin. The weight and, and indeed the reality, the, the fullness of all our sins I, I look at my own life and I look at my sins that I can see. And it's 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 a way it's it's a debt. It's 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 a mound of ugliness, a putridness that I can't imagine and I don't even see the fullness of it. But Jesus took all his people's mounds of vile corruption and sin on him. He became the sin bearer. And then he bore the wrath of God. So that the death angel, God, would not strike us because he struck his son. Oh, beloved people of God, is not Christ beautiful? Is he not lovely in our eyes? There's no other like him. We see in him the love of God for sinners. Even as Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son. That if we believe on him, we should not perish. That's, that's the death, the, the eternal wrath of God. That we should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life, which in Jesus' high priestly prayer, that's, that's to know the Father. To come into the presence of the Father to be children of the Father, to call upon God as Father God, as Jesus taught us to pray, as we prayed earlier in our service, our Father. That's what Jesus and Jesus alone does for sinners. Oh, that he would see him as precious. Well, in this text, as we've seen this pronouncement, but I mentioned earlier that this has been foretold all the way back in chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord, coming to faith, the Lord speaks to Moses. He's, he's meeting with him in the wilderness. He says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry. It's the same word then that we hear about this cry 
throughout all the land. Same word as Israel has cried. God will now make Egypt cry because he loves his people. And my brothers and sisters, we will have suffering. We will have persecution and affliction in the earth while we are on the earth. And God hears our cry. And there will be a day of justice when all those who have oppressed and afflicted the people of God, they will cry out. Not for a night, not for a period of grieving, but for all eternity. Oh, indeed, let us be found in Christ. This judgment, this vengeance of God was announced to Moses. And even so, Pharaoh was forewarned. Even after the darkness and all the other plagues, Pharaoh was told, the firstborn, from Pharaoh who sits on the throne. You imagine, here's Pharaoh sitting on his throne. Thus says the Lord, God's going to pass throughout the land, and he will strike the firstborn of Pharaoh, kind of speaking of him in the third person. Of the, it's the word of the Lord to him, for the Pharaoh, even you, all the way down. Pharaoh had time to repent, didn't he? We've seen that with the other plagues. A number of the plagues were announced, and he said, tomorrow. Right now, you refuse, Pharaoh, but... This is coming tomorrow. Pharaoh had time after time after time to repent, to cry out to God, have mercy, deliver me from my arrogance, forgive me for my sin, rescue me from my, my crazy notion of thinking that I'm sovereign. But sinners here and now, we even have opportunity. We hear this message of the blessed hope that is found in Christ, a sweet and precious Savior who is able to do all for us, and yet... Sinners have heard that message and they're indifferent. They have hard hearts like Pharaoh. So what's a sinner to do? You can't change your own heart. Scripture is clear about it. You have a dead heart. What should you do? If you feel the working of God's Spirit, if you're convicted about your own sin and your need of Christ, the response is, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh God, would you give me a heart of flesh to replace my heart of stone? And even knowing that the Holy Spirit has brought you to that point, and the Holy Spirit is working in you, and then just, you know, as one who has been regenerated, keep running to the Lord, crying out to the Lord, save. We move then to the third point, proof of God's electing grace. We find this in verse 7. The pronouncements have been made. Pharaoh's heard it. But then Moses tells him something else. And, and Pharaoh should not doubt that this is true because th this has happened with other plagues. I think it's since the fourth plague onward that you know, Egypt is, uh, Israel has been exempt. God says, but against the children of Israel shall a dog, not shall a dog move, none of, I'm sorry, again, not, but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move his tongue against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between Egypt and the Egyptians in Israel. God is electing grace. God's discrimination. I, I, I like the uh, the literal nature of the, the dog shall not move. It's a, uh, we shall not have a sharp tongue. It's the idea of growling. He's, he's not, you know, a, dog's, a dog's not even going to growl against the Israelites. You think about that. The, the death angels going throughout all of the land. I mean, dogs tend to pick up on things, but in, in Israel, the, the dogs didn't bark out. They're silent. Throughout that land. This is God's electing grace. God making a distinction. Like as I said, we see that back in chapter 8, verse 23. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. Chapter 9 and verse 4. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. Remember, after that, Pharaoh sent servants. Go check on that. And sure enough, it was true. Their livestock was all intact and unharmed. And then again in verse 26 of the same chapter, only in the land of Goshen where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And then in chapter 10 in verse 23, but the children of Israel had light in their dwellings while well, the plague of darkness was on the Egyptians. God's electing grace, Malachi opens his uh, oracle from the Lord declaring the word of God, I have loved you, says the Lord. You just say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but 
Esau I have hated. Paul quotes this in Romans. He makes this distinction. For sake of time, we won't read that, but read Romans 9, 15 through 18. It's the one that ends with the potter. You know, that the potter has the right to do with the clay as he will. God's electing grace. You know, Who is man that you should say to God what you have done? Silence your arrogant mouth if you would speak such a way. God is God. He will do as he will. He's, he's the body. He's taken us of the dust of the earth, and he's fashioned us. And he's not unjust because we all sinned in Adam, and we are guilty. We deserve death and wrath. It was true for all of the Israelites, all their firstborn. And indeed, it's true for all those down through the ages who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved. God was merciful. God appointed a people for himself and gave them to his son before the foundation of the earth. And we see that pictured here, the electing grace of God. On that night, Israel was spared. And the Lord passed throughout the land. No one of Abraham's children died. We're going to hear how this worked as we move forward in the next chapter. It sets up the focus of what follows, even as I've already expounded it. That's a substitute. That's what Israel's going to find out about. A substitute. The lamb, the paschal victim, whose blood was shed in their place, placed on the side post of their doors and on the lentil across the top. So that when God passed through the land, he saw the blood of the lamb, and they were spared. It was his electing grace, but it was also by his decretive purpose. He says, Israel, you must do this. You do it, you can eat the lamb, and then stay in your house, and furthermore, be girded up for travel. Be ready to go, because you're going out. Even so it is today. God's electing grace calls on sinners. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Without belief on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are condemned already. There's no cost to you. Christ has paid the cost, as we've heard. He has suffered in your place. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God's electing grace, coming to you according to his appointment. Because the reality is we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. From the youngest of you children, even to the oldest of us, we all deserve God's punishment. We are all conceived in sin, and we have sinned. We are sinners that deserve God's justice. God has said, I will by no means acquit the guilty. It's how is it we're not guilty? It's Christ again. It's because of Christ again. Oh, precious Christ. Oh, that in Christ we would be found. Come to him, as I've said, by faith alone. And in that faith, you're united to him in his death and his burial and resurrection. Paul said we're crucified in Christ. He says that I am baptized, I'm buried with Christ, that his death becomes effective in my life, that I've died to sin in Christ, and I've been set free. The acceptable year of the Lord. The opening of the prison doors for the captive. This is what Christ has accomplished when he shed his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Oh, hallelujah, what a Savior. We want to conclude the, close with a warning to the unconverted. It's been all along, but I want to stress it again at the end. Some might hear this passage and think, well, this is pretty unjust for, for the households of Egypt. If Pharaoh's been the, the honorary one. He's the one with a hard heart. He's the one that's brought all this upon his people. Now, why are all the Egyptians going to suffer? Well, go back to Paul's writings in Romans 3. I'll just take a part of what he says there. There's none righteous. No, not one. That's true for all of us today. There's none righteous. None of us have right standing before God alone. If we stand alone, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after the Lord. They have all turned aside. There's that all encompassing. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Remember again what John records. He who does not believe is condemned already. And it is for those who remain in that state that the coming of the Lord becomes a day of vengeance. God was not unjust in leaving Pharaoh as he was. 
This was the condition of Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh, we, we heard, Pharaoh, he hardened his own heart against the gospel message. He was refusing to believe the Lord. He hardened himself. He can fully embrace the idea that he was a God worthy of worship, willing to engage in a contest with the Lord God Almighty. You might say, wow, Pharaoh. No, if you're a sinner who does not believe the word of God and come to Christ, wow, you, you and your arrogance, so-called sovereignty, believing that you are God and that you can save yourself, you're shaking your fist at God. You're hardening your heart against the Almighty because you are dead in your trespasses. You are condemned already. And let me urge you to call upon Christ, to flee to Christ. Oh, children, why do you disobey your parents? Why do you choose to do what you want to do instead of being told by your parents whom God has appointed over you? It's because you're sinners. You can be really young and understand that. You look at your own life, young children, and you know you need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. So we pray for you when you're baptized that even then God might be pleased by the Holy Spirit to give you a heart of flesh in the place of a heart of stone. I've seen some children where I think that has happened. They just grow up different. Children, you need Christ as your Savior. And so it was in that synagogue in Nazareth about 200 years ago that this Christ said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken hide, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Yes, 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 amen. Our cry is, oh, save me thou, Jehovah. Save me, Lord Jesus Christ. But there are those who would rather refuse than come. Condemned already. And Christ's coming ultimately then as the God-man, seated on a throne by God's appointment and with rights as the second Adam will judge all the sons of Adam. And there will be some who here come, welcome, servant of the Lord, into the rest prepared for you. And to others he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And they will cast off the brink into hell forever, the day of God's vengeance. Be found in Christ by faith alone. Amen. O Lord our God, press these words of truth upon our heart. May we indeed be found in Christ. O Lord, would you even take your word that our little ones have heard and work in them, even so young, Lord, uh, even with just a simple childlike faith as Jesus commends, Lord, that you would give them that faith. And though they may not understand all the things that the pastor does, surely that's okay, Lord, but help them to understand their sin and Jesus who deals with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.